welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation, so we can grow in our relationship with God. Tonight, uh, I wanted to talk to you guys about... um the title, uh, title of my uh, sermon here, or what I'm going to go through, is uh, it's rather long, sounds silly, but I like it. After a storm, spend time in the desert with a sleeping God. And what I'm trying to do with that is go through a series of events that uh, is near and dear to me, but also every Christian, if they live long enough, is going through it. So a storm <clears throat> is defined as a violent disturbance in the atmosphere, which produces strong winds, rain, and typically uh, it's coupled with lightning and thunder. Now, this can also happen in the winter as uh, it can happen with the winter in the winter with snow. But most of all, and most of the time, this is a byproduct of two opposing forces. It's a warm air front or a cold air front. Um, Now... (laughs) A lot of times what we hear about storms is they're bad. So we always hear about the damage and we never really get to hear any of the good things about it. So I'm going to try to help you a little tonight with that as well. So the benefits of a storm are thunderstorms bring needed clean water to vegetation, to lakes, and to reservoirs. Storm winds distribute seeds and pollen um, and they help remove old and weak vegetation so that new stuff can grow. And this may not be a surprise to you, but if you've been at this church for any time, you have heard Pastor Doe talk about lightning. And lightning being uh, nature's natural air purifier. Okay? However, lightning also, um, it, it not only does that, it also um, liberates the nitrates, which is, uh, fertilizes the soil. Okay? And lightning produces about 20% of the uh, nitrogen that we find in our soil each year. So it's very important. God's just really cool with that stuff. Uh, The updrafts in the wind, very important. We see that wind come up. It removes pollution from the ground level, so that's a a benefit for us. And then the rain itself actually washes down and uh, cleans the pollution out of the air as well. Storms usually invoke fear and anxiety in people, especially if they will be exposed to those forces. That's why it's good to be prepared and understand what to do if you're caught in one. You know ahead of time what the forecast will be. That's important. Seek shelter, have supplies on hand, and know who to call in an emergency. Interestingly enough, there are spiritual storms as well as just physical storms. And they also invoke fear, anxiety, and they can be damaging. And most of all, they have benefits. In the Bible, God gives us examples of what these storms look like and the people that were impacted by him. Some of these people are. Job comes to mind. Job was, uh, you know, is a, a well-known story. Um, I wouldn't want to be Job. Sometimes we feel like Job, but he was one of the wealthiest men around in his time. And in one day, he lost all of his, all of his possessions. He lost all of his servants slash employees, if you want to call them that, and all of his children. He was a good man. 
But he became, he became caught between two storm, between in a storm that would test his faith and his loyalty to God. The storm was destructive and hard to understand to the point that Joe's wife advised him to curse God and die. If that isn't a true picture of love, I don't know what is, though. <laughs> I mean, I can tell you, I have a hard time at work, and I come home, and I'm telling Pam, and she just gives me a kiss on the cheek and says, Honey, curse God and die. <laughs> I'm just kidding. She doesn't kiss me. But <laughs> nevertheless. However, in Job 42:10 through 12, we read that the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. So because of his faith and loyalty God, uh, to God during the storm, the Lord blessed him the latter part of his life um, than he did in the beginning. I'm not sure how his wife is, was part of that deal, but we can only hope that she grew in her faith as well. Uh, the next person comes to mind is Joseph. This guy. Most of this guy's life was a storm. It was in and out, in and out. The most damaging part of the storm for him, that it came from the people that he loved. Because his misinterpretation, excuse me, because of misinterpretations of his dreams and envy, his brothers, they tried to kill him. Never had that happen with my brothers, but they tried to kill him by throwing him into a well. And his oldest brother made the suggestion that they not kill him and that they sell him into slavery. And uh, they did. And then Joseph was exported to Egypt. Not so much of a, a good life there. But next, Joseph finds himself employed by Potiphar and his hard work got him promotions and he raised up and, and he did good. But again, because he was loyal and faithful to God. The only problem was, is that he was so loyal to his God that Potiphar's wife didn't care for that. <laughs> and because of that, he spent time in the big house. He made some friends there. And while he was there, <laughs> while he was there, he told them, interpreted some dreams for them. One guy had a good dream. One guy, not so good dream, right? But he was hoping that when the guy with the good dream was released, that he would find somebody and seek favor for Joseph to be released. Well, his friend failed him too. The whole time, he was faithful and loyal to God, never doubting, and, never doubting him and believing the outcome would be as God planned. So it doesn't surprise me that we read in Genesis 41, 39 through 42, it says, Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all of this known to you. There is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace. And all of my people are, will, are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. That's pretty impressive. And as far as where he started to where he's finishing, God bless him. He did. Moses, he's another guy, right? Moses went from living in a high life, uh, living the high life in the big city, to living in a tent tending sheep. So he sort of went the reverse. 
More disturbingly, though, after God finished getting all the Egypt out of Moses, he explained to him he had a plan for him. He wanted to restore him. But Moses had an excuse for why he was uncomfortable with his storm. Now, after some negotiation and some signs and wonders, God and Moses, uh, God used Moses to take down a world power. Um, think of that, though. <laughs> it just blows my mind. Uh, we find uh, this historian in the book of Exodus, and, and I'll let you guys read that at a later point. But there are many other storms in the Bible where faith and loyalty are tested and rewarded. Gideon comes to mind, Samson, Peter, Paul, to name a few. And I'm sure that each one of us have varying degrees of stories of times that we spent in storms. Um, these storms, they still bring the fear and anxiety, pain and loss, heartache and despair. But did you hold tightly to your Savior's hand during the storm? Was God's promise from Philippians 4, 7 evident in your storm? It tells us that, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. One of the largest storms uh, in my life, as well as my wife and both my sons, Ethan, who's here, um, started back in 2013, uh, Halloween, around 3.30 p.m., while we were visiting a neurologist at St. Peter's Hospital, Hospital for some vision issues that Andrew had. It was, first, it was the first dark clouds that showed up as far as the storm goes, and the wind started picking up. <clears throat> While the neurologist was examining Drew, he uh, had him sit up on the exam table, and I don't know what they call it, but that little eye thing they look into your eyes with. And he's looking in Drew's eyes, and he starts with the right eye, and he goes to the left eye, and he pauses. And he goes back to the right eye, and to the left eye, and he pauses. He did this several times. Then he asked Drew to step down from the exam table and to join me at his desk. Now, this affirmed that the storm was coming. And he explained that he would like to get some images of Drew's head. And it was going to, it was, it was good because he was able to make an appointment at the hospital at 6 p.m. that night. So Andrew, not yet understanding what was happening, only wanted to go out with his friends and be able to go trick-or-treating to get candy. I persuaded him that we should stay and get a bite to eat at a place called Stuff Your Face. It was just down the road. <laughs> it's a good place. Um, get the scan. And we'd be home in time uh, to go out with his friends. He conceded. But it was about 6.30 when the first bolt of lightning hit. And it was immediately followed by a soul rattling clap of thunder. There was no longer any doubt that the storm was here. Drew had just finished the first part of his MRI. And a very small Indian doctor opened up the door to the MRI room. And he waved me out. He said with a very heavy accent, the child will not go home with you tonight. And then pointed to the monitor showing a massive tumor in Drew's head. 
I felt everything inside of me drop. I just became numb. The gale force winds were now here. After contacting Pam, and I'm sorry, dear, the tissues are right over there. After contacting Pam, the storm has now reached her. I also contacted other Christians for prayer. And they were faithful to do that. And I contacted my friend to come and get Pam to bring her to the hospital. I had to compose myself as I saw the nurse starting to bring Drew out to the MRI tech room, which is a very small room. And, um, excuse me. I asked him to sit down when he came out in the only chair that was available. And then I knelt beside him to tell him the results. Another bolt of lightning strike. Another bolt of lightning. And now Drew was part of the storm. His head sank down and no words were spoken until the nurse came back with the wheelchair and said, I can take you to your room now. With, it, with that, Andrew just sighed, lifted his head, and said, okay, let's go. As the nurse navigated us through the hospital, wheeling Andrew to the PICU, I could see his hand shaking, and I felt so helpless and unprepared. As we walked, I knew that others could see the distress on my face, placed, pleading with God for help. As we walked, I just was panicking and trying to figure out what to do. And then I just kept hearing that whisper in my, fo- in my head, Psalm 46.10. Some of you know it. It's be still and know that I am God. And I'd hear it over and over again. And with this, there was the wash, as I like to refer to it. When the Holy Spirit fills you with his peace, and all of a sudden, what was numb comes to life. And you're walking now as if you're not even touching the ground. It's an amazing feeling. I don't know how many people have had it before, but I can't explain it. When we got to the room the PICU, uh, in the PICU, the nurse had helped Andrew into his bed. And I told Drew that there were going to be a lot of people that were going to be hooking up to all types of equipment and monitors to see what's going on. But I said, before everybody comes in and does that, I want to pray. And so we did. And when we were done, Andrew said, Dad, can I ask you a question? And I said, sure, of course you can. I'll I'll answer the best I can, thinking that we were going to be talking about medical issues or things like that. But he said, Dad, am I going to die? Now, sorry. Now the storm was right on top of us. And that lightning bolt hit me because I was not prepared to answer my 13-year-old son question on him dying. Sure, as Christians, we talked about death, but this was personal. Again, God whispered, and and I responded to his question, to Drew's question. I said, Drew, yes, you're going to die, but not tonight. And I went on to explain that I've always been honest with him. We've always talked about things. I went on to explain that I can't see the future, but God can. 
And that's who we put our trust in. He asked me again. He said, Dad, I have another question. He said, when the nurse told him that she was going to take him to the room, he thought that he was being taken to a room in the hospital where they take people to die. And in his 13-year-old mind, that was real. And as I reflected back on that later, I thought to myself, I watched his handshaking but his composure was amazing. And as I, I, I watched, and I thought, if someone told me we're going to take you to a room to die, I think my reaction and possibly yours would be a little bit different. But he was, he was very secure in his faith. I re- <clears throat> Excuse me. I responded and assured Andrew um, of what it means to be a Christian. And I reminded him when he was nine years old, which was only four years prior, a night after we had a family devotional, which he came to my room later on, and he asked me how he could have Jesus in his heart. I went over to explain that night as he knelt down with, the, with me alongside my bed, and we prayed for Jesus to be his Lord. I explained that it changed everything everything in his life. I continued to assure him and, and let him know that whatever, whenever the day comes that his eyes close for the last time on this earth, that he will immediately be in paradise with Jesus and then I told him, you will understand completely what we can only imagine here on earth. I just had no idea that it was going to be 10 years after he accepted Christ as his Savior that he would go to live with him. That storm lasted almost six years. And while it was destructive with 10 brain surgeries, the emotional, financial, and physical toll it took on my family was tremendous. You know, if we had a choice, I would have never chosen that. However, and I know this is hard for some people to understand, and I agree with it, but I wouldn't change it if I had the ability to. While I miss my son horribly, and I long for his reunion, I am comforted to know that he lost nothing. He gained. He gained. Do we truly believe what God tells us in the Bible? Through Paul in Philippians 1.21, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Do we believe? Do we? Or is it just a nice verse to memorize that makes us feel good?
Next part was the desert. <laughs> and I'll try to be a little more lighter. As humans, we tend to be, have the propensity to hear what we want to hear and sort of bias, right? It's filtered through all things me. And for you, it's all things you. I know. <laughs> I know. But Dave, I'm a good Christian. I put others first, just as God's commanded us. And I believe you. But a good test to check to see who we think of first happens right after a group portrait is taken. And especially in today's digital world where things are instant. Now be honest. When reviewing the photo, who is the first person you look at? Right? Ding, ding, ding. You guessed it. It's always, you know, I was going to say, statistically is typically yourself. Now for me, since I'm higher up on the scale, I completely go look for myself because I am obsessed to see in the picture that my hair came out good. <laughs> well, communication is no different. All right. And we tend to listen for things that concern us and we tend to speak of things that concern us. And I learned as a very young man that detail and communication can be vital for your survival. <laughs> While hiking the Grand Canyon, um, I learned that asking specific questions are very important. See, it was our third day in and on this day, we, were, we would uh, reach the Colorado River. Okay, it's a beautiful sight. More importantly, it's a water source. Okay, so the temperature in the canyon was hovering around a cool 113 degrees that day. Oh, don't worry. It's it's not as bad as you think because you don't sweat. Okay, it's a dry heat, right? The moisture evaporates in your body so quickly, it just leaves a whitish powder on your skin. It's salt, and you just brush it off. But let's do a little math, right? So if water weighs about eight pounds per gallon, and you need a minimum of about a gallon a day, uh, and you're carrying two to three days' worth of water with you, plus stashing water along the way so you have water on the way out, how heavy is your pack? <laughs> Well, I started with a 40 to 50, pound, 40 to 50 pounds worth of water, um, and, which was topped off with maybe another 25, 30 pounds worth of gear and uh, food. So I was looking at about a 65 to 80 pound pack going into the canyon. And I'm not sure if you guys know this, but hiking a canyon is much different than hiking a mountain. You see, in a mountain, <clears throat> you expend most of your energy going up it, so for the first part of it. And it's much easier to come down a mountain. As a matter of fact, if you're falling, it goes a lot quicker. <laughs> well, the opposite is true of, for the Grand Canyon. It's easier getting into it than it is getting out of it. And we had a friend who lived in Arizona and hiked the canyon many a times. So she was our guide, and she told me that on the way out, when she was thinking about the weight of my pack. So on the way out, because I had to have cameras and everything else to bring with me, she says, on the way out, you're going to want to saw your toothbrush in half to lighten the load. And she was right. <laughs> so the specific question I asked was, what time will we see the Colorado River? And our guide, our guide said around noon. Now, 
I wanted to know this because I was trying to calculate how much water I could consume before then. You see, I wanted to be a little bit more liberal in my drinking. Now, my question was answered correctly. We would see the Colorado about noon. The only problem was we were still over 300 feet above it. And we spent the rest of the day going on switchbacks. And I'm not sure if you know what those are, but they're tiny little trails that kind of back and forth, back and forth to get down. So, to my chagrin, I consumed all of my water by 11 o'clock and became severely dehydrated. And as a result, I had the typical muscle cramps. I had a severe headache. And worst of all, I had tunnel vision on the most dangerous part of the trip. Traversing narrow paths hundreds of feet above the river, a river that I so desperately needed. Uh, So, my question should have been, when will... We be able to put, when will I be able to put my feet in the Colorado River, which would have allowed me to make a better decision. Traveling in a desert is a lot, is a lot of things, depending on the amount of time that you spend in it. A three-hour tour on a donkey, maybe a horse, even an ATV, and for some people, a helicopter, this doesn't require much <laughs> planning or preparation. However, If you're spending a full day, maybe a week, or even longer, you better have a plan, especially if you want to survive. There are tools, gears, and supplies, and most of all, knowledge that you will need to have, or the desert will consume you. Now, the knowledge you have, you can come from you, or you can have it from a guide, and the more experience the guide has, the better chances of your survival and enjoyment are while you're in the desert. Now, as we noted with storms in the physical desert, you can spend time in, uh, you, excuse me, as the storms in a physical sense, we can also have a physical desert, but we also can have spiritual deserts. Um, now, in a physical desert, people refer to those as vacations, but in a spiritual desert, I'm pretty sure no one's going to refer to it as a vacation. Biblically speaking, deserts represent wilderness, hardship, isolation, basic uh, unmet needs, feeling lost, etc., etc. And the longer our desert experience continues, the more likely we are to sink into depression, despair, and or hopelessness. Now, now, spiritual desert, you will also need the same thing. You'll need tools, gear, supplied, knowledge, a.k.a. a Bible, prayer, good counsel, fellowship, church. However, you also will need a guide and you will not survive without him, a.k.a. Jesus Christ. During my six-year storm, I was never without God. He provided personal and corporate help. He spoke clearly and often through quiet times, reading scripture, online pastors, friends, family, and this church. However, After we lost Andrew on July 10th, 2019, life changed. Suddenly I felt lost. My purpose in life uh, just just changed. And I went from living at a 90 mile per hour uh, rate to about 25. I didn't know it yet, but things were about to change again and become a more arid situation. I only had about 10 months until I would lose my job due to COVID. 
and spend the next year and eight months unemployed. And after that, only find myself currently underemployed. Whatever was left from the physical, emotional, and financial hardship that the storm caused was about to be consumed by the desert. And in the beginning, I confidently applied what I knew. And I wasn't worried. I was, you know, just like, it's not a problem. Been here before. God's going to take care of it. So I knew what to do. And I was praying and seeking counsel and doing all the right things. I was confident that it would be a short disruption, but I started to notice that one thing was different that made this become a desert. Where was God? At first, I assumed that it was my hypersensitive uh, to his intimacy during the storm that it just seemed like every day I was, I was in a relationship with God and everything was going good. But in this case, I couldn't find God. There was no affirmation. There was no joy. And it was starting to dissipate. And it was just wondering what was going on. Um, but the, excuse me, but the, the time went on to a dryness and it became more evident that my readiness for the desert, uh, the tools, gear, supplies, and guide were in various forms of disarray. And I needed a guide to help me to help me succeed from slipping into a bad uh, and unproductive habits and finding very few things that would bring me peace and joy. I found myself feeling like Job in Job thirty-four twenty-nine when he says, when he keeps quiet, who then can condemn? And when he hides his face, who can behold him? That is in regard to both nation and man. I was getting angry that I was not hearing from God and that my situation was not being resolved, but how can I blame him if he's quiet? How can I blame him if he hides his face? Like Job, who am I to God? At a time, as time went on, I found myself echoing what David said in Psalm 63, 1, where he says, Oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you. In a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. The absence of God to a Christian who truly follows him will find that their flesh and their soul are tormented without him, with no relief in sight. I found myself pleading with God, as in Psalm 13, 1 through 2, it says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me? Forever, How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall, you, shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemies be exalted over me? But while these thoughts and emotions are just, they are not true. God is not moved. In his silence, and his silence has meaning. Just three more verses down, David has revealed what our position should be in the desert. And he says, but I have trusted in you. Excuse me. I've trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to, you, sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. We cannot forget that God is, while in the desert, and what he has done for us during the periods of dryness. In a quiet 
in the quiet of the desert, there is a beauty. There is solace. And there is an emptying of one's soul, which I think has great purpose because then God can fill it with what he needs, his spirit and his purpose. The last part here is uh, called the sleeping God. (laughs) And a question for everyone is, when your God is silent, is it because he's sleeping? And if he's sleeping, is that a problem? In 1 Kings 18 through 27, we read Elijah mocks the gods of Jezebel's prophets, Ezra and Baal. During a whose God is greater showdown, the prophets of Baal are not having any results on their side. And their God is apparently not showing up for the challenge. The prophets are doing their thing, but it appears that Baal can't hear them, and he's calling out as they're calling out to him. So Elijah, being a true good Christian man, he mocks them. (laughs) He says, he yells out to the prophets and suggests that they cry out in a louder voice since he may be sleeping. In verse 27, it says, And at noon, Elijah ridiculed them and said, Call out in a loud voice. Since he is a god, undoubtedly he is attending to business or or on his way. Or maybe he's on a journey. Perhaps he is asleep and he will awaken. You know, the funny thing is, though, Elijah was a pretty well-known prophet, right? And undoubtedly, these prophets knew him as well. And evidently, they valued his opinion. Um, See, Elijah called for it not to rain, and the rain stopped, right? Everybody in Israel knew it and experienced it. So the prophets needed, or excuse me, the prophets heeded his advice. And in the next verse, we read, they did exactly what he said. In verse 28, it says, so they cried out with a loud voice. They also did... Other stupid things that are associated with many religions, but we won't get into that. Ezra and Baal never showed up or answered. And we can expect that from any god, small g, or idol that we put before our Lord. There is no joy that comes from them. There is no peace that comes from them. So Elijah was right to mock them. And for Jezebel's prophets, it became a bad day. Yet, in an example from our Lord, he told the people closest to him, the ones that he loved, to get in a boat that he knew was heading for trouble. Why? We're told in Matthew eight twenty three through 27 that when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, a violent storm developed on the sea. That the boat was being covered with waves, but Jesus himself was sleeping. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. These were experienced fishermen. This had to be a bad storm. (laughs) He said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became calm, perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, what kind of man is this? 
that even the winds and the sea obey him. Their fear was misplaced. They were afraid of what they could see, out, you know, the outside forces, which were creating a dangerous situation. But because of this, they then started to internalize it. And internalizing the fears, it turned into doubt and insecurities and obviously fear of death. But they forgot who they were traveling with. They forgot that Jesus said in verse 18, just a little further up. Now, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to depart for the other side of the sea. So, if we know and trust God, and he says we're going across the sea, well, then I say sit back and enjoy the ride. But that's a little hard to do when you're in the middle of a storm. In verse 27, we see the transformation that needs to happen to all of us. I'm going to call it amazed fear. At this point, they have a position. They have positioned Christ rightly within their hearts and understand that everything obeys Christ. Everything. Everything obeys when he speaks. That's a pretty cool God to hang out with. So does the Bible say... What does the Bible say that pertains to us? What do we have hidden in our hearts and our minds that we take with us throughout our day that battles those situations? My life verse is Philippians 4, 6, and 7. I love it. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The hard part in that verse, it's not presenting the request to God, but it's being thankful for them. And as I go back and I look at the situations that I've been in through my life, I truly try to find the parts that I can be thankful for. How about 2 Corinthians 12.9, another favorite? And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I, will, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That was my prayer tonight. <laughs> because I needed it. In Psalm 46.10, another one that I carry with me all the time. Be still and know that I am God. That short sentence has taken me from a hyper scenario and always brought me down to understand that there's nothing I'm going through that can't be solved. Again, though, I will ask, do we really believe what is written? If we're not reading it, then we absolutely need to listen to it. We must do this in order to get his truth inside of us so that we're prepared for whatever storms or deserts come our way. Whether you are in the middle of a storm or alone in the desert, do not mistake our sleeping God for a God that does not hear or care about you. More so, I think it's that we understand his silence is because he already knows our future. 
He already knows our destination. Which we'll arrive at. And he wants us to trust him. How we arrive is up to us though. With joy and peace. Or with anxiety and unrest. I would rather be an apostle singing and worshiping in prison after they were beaten than not. I would want to apply Paul's secret of being content in much and little in all situations. And I'll finish with this. My unemployment was very hard on me. But I have to be thankful for what I have and I continue to have an anticipated hope that God would provide the opportunity that he sees best in my life. As usual, he answered. And to let you know how good God is <laughs> and how he works, I had an interview back in September with a company. Um, they were looking for an operations manager to turn into a general manager. And um, wound up going up and through everything, and it wound up being very good. But uh, they chose to go with another individual who had 20 years' experience in the field. So I, uh, after learning that, I sent an email, and uh, I just wanted to say thank you for the opportunity and uh, you know, let him know that uh, if anything changes, uh, reach out to me. The owner of the company replied saying that he really liked me. He said, I really like the way you think about handling and resolving problems. He doesn't know that that comes from my deep belief in Jesus Christ and my Christianity. I shared if there's any changes to let me know. And here it is, almost five months later, I got a call asking if I was still on the market. And I start Monday. God is... <laughs> God is faithful in every situation I have ever been in. Whether it has been the seven years of infertility that my wife and I went through, whether it was the two failed adoptions before we were able to successfully get Ethan, the loss of our daughter, my son's six-year battle of cancer, with cancer, and subsequently his death, Multiple unemployment scenarios outside of my control. It was the crash of 2008 that I lost one really good job and then COVID kicked me out of another one. So I'm hoping the next big issue will be the rapture so that way I don't have to worry about it. Okay. But I want to say that there is comfort in knowing that God can see it all. The good and the bad and that no matter what happens, his peace and his joy is available for us. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7 p.m. And Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to www.cccrossfields.org, where you can also watch or listen to previous messages.
If you have any questions or have a prayer request, please email us at contact at cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless.